0: Hello, and welcome to Mindful You at Naropa, a podcast presented by Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. I'm your host, David Devine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you. Joining the best of Eastern and Western educational traditions, Naropa is the birthplace of the modern mindfulness movement. Welcome to another episode of the Mindful You Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us in the studio, Reggie Hubbard. Reggie is currently in town speaking at Colorado University, who is our academic neighbor, running a workshop named Good Grief, a Sangha for Healing and Transformation. He currently works as a yoga instructor, coach, and speaker. Alongside all of his contributions to his yoga work, he also is the founder and chief serving officer at Active Peace, LLC. He has graced us with his presence today to speak about his experience and knowledge of yoga and mindfulness. So welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today?
1: Life is beautiful. Happy to be here.
0: Awesome. So this is a very fun interview because I had a friend of mine reach out to me and experience a talk that you had. I think it was at Omega. Mm -hmm. And she was like, you need to get this guy on your (laughs) podcast. Okay, like, let's do it. And I looked into you and- your work and what you do and on your website, it was just so in line with what Naropa and Values has. It's just weird that you're not speaking at Naropa. You're, <laughs> not yet. Seriously, not yet. We'll talk later. We'll get you there. But it's just really beautiful to like bring you on the podcast and just have you here. So thank you so
1: much for showing up. Absolutely delight to be here. Thank
0: you, Sierra. Yeah, Sierra. <laughs> so to begin, I was curious if you could just tell us a little bit about your journey of becoming a yoga instructor and also becoming an educator in this practice. So like what inspired you to follow the yoga and teaching and maybe talk about like your, your school bring up and, you know, maybe if you were inspired before that, like how that all unfolded.
1: Yeah. So I majored in existential philosophy in college. So I've been brooding for quite some time and whether it be notions of impermanence or whether it be notions of, is this really all there is? Like I've been, holding those since I was 17 and I turned 49 in two weeks. So it's been quite some time that I've been kind of like, uh, is this it? <laughs> so I didn't really start practicing asana or meditation until 2013, uh, 2014. I had a, uh, blessing. I looked in the mirror one day, I was way overweight and my I had bags under my eyes and those sorts of things. And it's like the ancestors were like, we didn't send you here for this. You need to figure this out. And I took a, uh, Vegan cleanse, right? So April 1st is what I consider my reborn day. It was the day that I made my health, well-being, in all aspects, sacrosanct. So a little bit more than sacred.
0: How old were you in that? 38. Okay.
1: Mm -hmm. And so that was the beginning of intentional decisions about diet and exercise and prioritizing sleep and those sorts of things. Because my background is is as a political campaigner. So political campaigners have great hearts and horrible habits, and I was the poster child of both of those things, right? So I would work 18-hour days and, like, chain smoke for breakfast and, like, have bourbon for, like, a brunch. Oh, fun. And curse people out for dinner and then eat fast food at 1 o'clock in the morning. So not the most sustainable lifestyle. And at 38, I was essentially like, yo, you're still here. So give thanks and do something better with with your health and well-being. So took a six-month vegan cleanse to just be – very disciplined about breaking old habits. And that revealed to me diet, some, some scar that I had, like little patterns and loops in my head that I'm like, this isn't even you anymore. And that begat a yoga practice, which was rooted. So very, very, very long story short. In the political game, your aspiration is to be in or around the White House, especially at the level where I was working at. And despite a Yale education, despite a master's degree, In international business, despite the ability to speak conversant, Spanish, Portuguese, and blah, blah, blah. I never was able to break into the presidential personnel um, process, whatever, which in retrospect, it was as if the ancestors were like, that's not for you. You have the pedigree, but that's not for you. So one day I went all in. A former intern colleague of mine was in the presidential personnel office, and he was like, you should apply um, for these jobs, Reggie. And I was like, I don't trust y'all, man. You know what I mean? Because I was blacklisted from the Obama administration just on petty interpersonal politics. And um, I was like, look, unless you give me a job that's deputy this or that or deputy assistant secretary, I'm not interested thinking he wasn't going to find anything. Knowing what you want. Yeah. Well, and also thinking that it wasn't going to come back because they had been jerking me for years. And Uh so he comes back. You know, you can either apply to be deputy assistant secretary of international education or deputy chief of staff at Department of Education. And I was like you know, you really weren't supposed to come back with these answers. Right. And so I was like, I'm going to go all in. And so I called in all these favors. Cause I was like, I got nothing to lose. Pushed in for both, got to the top two for both jobs, got neither one. So all of the stuff comes up, right. I shouldn't have done this. I should, I never should have believed all this other stuff. But then I was like, it didn't work out. You have to figure something else out. And so that I made a checklist and I was like, I'm only going to do things that lower my blood pressure, are artsy, and that I've never done before. So a friend of mine is like, "Uh, Reggie, you should come practice yoga with me. And I was just like, heard about blood pressure, sure, artsy, and I sure as hell never done this before. In fact, the first time I was invited to do yoga, I responded, I'm not a skinny white woman, why would I do that? In this instance, you know, I go to this studio November 9th, 2014, and it was just, exactly the right time and exactly the right thing to do to decompress and learn more about my body and those sorts of things. And eventually move to Colorado, move to Denver after not getting these jobs. Cause going for those jobs and not getting them is like asking someone to marry you. And they say no. So I'm like, I can't I can't I can't be in town anymore, man. I gotta go. So moved to Denver to work for a nonprofit. And very long story short, it was a dream job. I had done some contract work with them the summer before, thinking it was going to be a great opportunity. And it was a dream job in the great way for the first six days. On day six, it turned into a nightmare. White woman came in, was like, I feel undermined by Reggie. And so that begat a staff Uh, meeting. Oh, okay. Yeah, day six. So that begat a staff meeting where the CEO or the president of the nonprofit who recruited me was like, yeah, we don't really know why we hired you. You're kind of a waste of headcount and all these other things. So she's saying this in my face. And I'm like, I'm like, and I'm from near Baltimore, Maryland. We don't get down like that. You can't be just talking outside your face to me like that. But if I cursed her out, I might have been fired.
0: Yeah. Well, she's explaining her feelings. You're like, give me the facts. Like, what am I actually doing? Right. How you feel, I guess, is kind of important. Right. But like, you know.
1: Yeah. Never got that. And... um. It just became increasingly horrible. So luckily, there was a studio in Denver called Kindness Yoga that was right near um, my house. I was living in Cherry Creek, which is hilarious because why is my black ass living in Cherry Creek? But lived there and um, went to this studio at 6 o'clock in the morning, February 10th, 2015. Never forget it. And um, this woman, lovely woman, was like, you know, we have this special 30 days for $30. I was like, I got 100 yeah. What will what'll this get me? I'm going to be here for a while. And became like a yoga gym rat, right? So went to asana in the morning at 6. And usually some variant of sunset or yin or some other practice at night twice a day, six, seven days a week, because the job just got worse and worse and worse. So bad that they fired me via text message 10 months later. And they asked me for an exit interview. And this is where I was like, yo, this yoga thing is magical because they asked me for the exit interview and this grace just flowed out. I was just like, hmm. Y'all know good and hell well. If you want to hear how I feel. Yeah, you go. yeah. Well, no, actually it was different. It was like, y'all know good and hell well. We don't need an exit interview. We don't really have much to say, but I w- I want to thank you. And they're like, for what? I, I want to thank you for how poorly you treated me because you gave me wisdom. And that wisdom has manifested in the grace that I'm showing before you now. And then I walked out and then I called my mom and my aunt and was like, this yoga thing is magical. This meditation thing is magical because I went from wanting to curse this lady out to thanking them for firing me because it gave me wisdom. So at that point, I was, I was like 39 or 40, 41. So it was early. I was, I was 41 actually. Pushed, I was like, I'm in. And joined the Bernie Sanders campaign after that and was able basically to merge my yogic and meditative practice with my social activism in one seamless whole. And to have, and rather than it being either or, both and.
0: Okay. That's such a beautiful journey. And what's interesting to me is like you started with existential philosophy and then you kind of like went to politics and then you went to yoga. So you're having mental to political to physical. You're having this experience where you're, you're hitting like different realms of how we show up in reality, you know, with our minds, with our body and with our uh, relations with each other. And I just think that's beautiful. So you even mentioned you went to Yale. Like, okay.
1: <laughs> First generation, too.
0: Dang, okay. That's awesome. So you live in Denver? I live in Maryland. Okay, you're in, you're in Baltimore? Mm-hmm, okay, just south, yep. You're currently in town to speak to the CU and the Boulder community, and your workshop today is based upon dealing with grief and discovering healing within. I'm curious if you could tell us a bit more about your workshop and like how you lead those types of spaces.
1: Yeah, so grief is an experience that we all have in common that no one talks about. And it's an unavoidable part of the human experience that everyone wishes would go away. And so that cognitive dissonance leads to societal ill, right? There are many of us who are carrying burdens that if we've never even considered what it would might look like to talk about it. And so what I do is introduce the healing power of sangha talking about a really thorny issue. And I usually I model it because I'm I'm far from a grief expert. Um, I started teaching about grief uh, when my cousin died suddenly about two years ago. Uh, he died of a pulmonary embolism at 44 and was just out. And it really forced me to confront all these notions that I had about life. You know, I'd seen people die before. I, I've been in like some really tricky situation. You know, I've been or I've had near death experiences. So and I was an existential philosophy major. So it's not that I know this thing ends, right? And so I'm always very purposeful about it. But when your younger cousin, who was your essential soul brother, is just out, it just it just rocked me. And it set forth a healing journey that has now been able to impact thousands of people, right? So very long story short, I model because let's just be honest, no one expects a black dude who looks like a football player to vulnerably talk about the loss of his cousin and do so in a way that talks about impermanence, compassion and the curative power of community as opposed to rampant isolationism, which leads to social ill, right? So I use mute, I'll be using like sound. So I'm using gongs, conversation, physical movement, and just inviting people to talk about what they're grieving. So I'll lead by saying the grief I'm bringing to today's circle is for my cousin who passed away for a society that seems to have lost all notions of civility for blah, 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 right? And Then open it up for people to discuss. I taught this this past weekend at Bhakti Fest in Joshua Tree, and there were 135 people there, and it was just so powerful in a way that I didn't expect, because I'm just going to be honest, I didn't expect white bodied people to be so emotive.
0: And that's always beautiful when you have that type of event where the crowd surprises you and you're like, you're like, damn, my work is hitting hard right now. This feels good. Like (laughs) I'm doing something powerful. Yeah. And so when you have shows like that, you're like, I oh, know I'm doing something big here. And so it's always good to do
1: that. It shocked me. I was like, whew. I mean, because I've been I've taught these classes probably about the seventh or eighth time. I'd say it's becoming a bit of a franchise and service to other people. I taught it before in Lexington, Virginia, and I would encourage people to. I mean, because in traditional Chinese medicine, grief is associated with lung chi. And so I would tell people to breathe, breathe deep, like sometimes like if you need to. And I didn't, no one would respond, like in Lexington, like I'd be like, exhale, ha. Ah! and people would be like, but in, uh, yeah, yeah, for real, right, let Come it go, on. right, you can do it louder, you know, Yeah. but it just wasn't dumb, right? I love being proven wrong as a teacher, too, like I'm going and thinking it's going to go a certain way, and it just blows my mind. These people, 10 seconds into it, were like, oh, ah, ah. like all this stuff, I'm like, oh, I guess we're, ex- Let's go. Yo, seriously, right? <laughs> right? We're extending this. And it went on for probably about two and a half minutes of just that beautiful catharsis of things that have been long suppressed, where people, one, felt comfortable enough to do it, had the space to do it, and weren't by themselves. And so the cumulative impact of that was only amplified by the fact that once everyone got everything out and we did like some physical asana, I put them to sleep with like gongs and like sound bowls and stuff.
0: Nice. Okay. Yeah, we love the gong, all the sacred healing frequencies and all that. So you're here facilitating a grief space at your workshop. And what are some of your go-to practices for holding such a space? You kind of just mentioned gongs and asanas. And then, you know, it seems like you have like a loud part, you have like a discussion part, and then you have like a calming part. Can you speak about that a bit more? What type of setting do you are trying to create? when you're doing that and do you have a special way of conducting the workshop with certain breath work meditate like do you do certain types of breath work other than just breathing from your lungs like is there a practice that you do or visualizations
1: yeah it tends to depend on the audience right and tend to depend on the vibe so i've done Viloma pranayama so three in one one out and that's like through the nose and then
0: out through the mouth Mm -hmm.
1: okay just to get I mean, because I know from my experience, too, like sometimes grief just has me super tight. And so I force people to open, not force, but just a lot, give people the invitation to open up, breathe deep and just get the cathartic experience of the body going. And once breath is going, I also encourage inelegant speech. What do you mean by that? Sometimes when you're like, so how are you feeling right now? You say, well, I'm particularly grieving the loss of such, you know, you can't, it's not like. I feel like shit. (laughs) Yeah. Or you may not even have those words. Right. So like it's permission to speak freely, either like I feel fucking terrible or, you know, sometimes it just, I don't know. Right. And it's OK to not know, because sometimes grief doesn't have words. Sometimes it's caught in the body and you got to shake it out. Sometimes it's n- non-speech, but still verbal. Right. It's not only a head philosophical experience Right, there, there are different ways that grief and the biochemical processes of grief manifest in the human experience. So giving people different avenues. You know, I'm a learner that is, I learn through words and sound. You put data and spreadsheets in front of me, I will lose, lose interest quickly, right? So it's also from a pedagogical perspective to be nerdy like that, the words may not get you, but the sound might get you. It just offers different opportunities for people to experience pathways to this peace and release.
0: Yeah, I love that too, because having the multidimensional ways of learning someone might sit in your practice for like 10 minutes and they're like, ah, I don't know if this is, oh wait, we're moving on to the sound. Here we go. This is my jam right here. So I love that. So being one who facilitates these types of spaces, I'm curious how important it is for people to confront and deal with their grief. And also, do you find that being in a public space dealing with grief is different than trying to do it by yourself? Because that's sensitive. You know, there's availabilities to be insecure or you don't know how to say how you feel because feelings are complex and dynamic and there's like a spectrum of them and you could be feeling a lot. There's like a lot of things going on at the same lives time for sure. Constantly. Mm-hmm. I always find that like I don't want to trouble people with my crap. right? So I tend to hold it back and try to deal with it myself. And I don't know if that's the best idea. <laughs> but, you know, it's like how important it is to be in community. Right. And I don't think most people like, oh, man, I'm grieving. I'm going to go call 10 of my friends. You know, it's not like you you just like show up. And right. Usually have that like one friend you can call and they'll hold that space for you or whatever. But
1: what have you found? Yeah, the beauty of this paradigm is one that's rooted in the ancient wisdom of community. Right. So it's not every one of us is going through something. We live in a world that encourages individualism and hyper focus on, on the ego as opposed to like communal communal care. And so what I've noticed is that once people feel as though. They're not alone. They'll say just about anything, right?
0: I guess if you're creating a container that they actually do feel safe in, because I'm not going to tell you my heart if I don't don't know you.
1: (laughs) Right. But there's an element that happens when people are, when hearts start to open, when tears start to flow, when those things start to happen, that you realize that the separation that you thought was true is not true and that you're actually connected to people in ways that you may not be aware of. And you may not be consciously aware of it, but you're subconsciously and spiritually aware of it. And so in that subconscious and spiritual awareness, it may because I I get this all the time. Like, I never thought I'd be speaking, but right. And so, like, it gives you the opportunity to bear witness to other people's humanity. And in so doing, know that you're not alone. I love that idea of subconscious
0: connection because that feels more authentic than how we actually run our daily lives and how we connect because there's always this front of like, I don't know you, I feel reserved, I might not tell you everything, I might change my expression. You know, I'm feeling sad, but I'm in public, so I'm going to, you know, try and uh, like, eh, I'm trying to show up and yeah. it's just like, it's it's okay. Everything's awesome. I feel like crap. It's okay to feel like crap. Absolutely,
1: and it's better to tell somebody about it so they if they're aware, they can treat you with the care that you deserve. As opposed to just,
0: oh, I'm fine,
1: but you're not.
0: Yeah, I guess part of the healing process is admitting and willing to show up for the admitting to someone or to (laughs) yourself, you know? Yeah, I have
1: an interesting story about that. So, and I talk about this in the grief sangha as well, our society also puts a shelf life on grief when incidents really. Yeah, well, I mean, I'll give you an example. So when my cousin died, I was very public about it, and it launched a... Not only this series, but just me being very open about grief and loss. And then someone came up to me at one point, six months after Corey passed, and was like, oh, you're still grieving that? And I'm like, yeah, the motherfucker's still dead. Of course I'm still grieving it. You kidding me? Right? And so what that did was two things. It showed me that people, it's not necessarily intentional, but I think it's more societal and cultural. They want you to be over it because they don't want to feel put out. And by proxy, people feel as though they don't want to put on other people. But you know, it also, in my case, gave me the, the guts to be like, yeah, I'm still grieving. He's still dead. What's your problem? As opposed to being like, oh, I'm sorry for mentioning it to you. I'm not sorry for mentioning it to you. I'm sorry that you don't have compassion to hold my grief like with care and I to get that out of here. I honestly love that you said that because
0: that's a term I've never heard before. But like right when you said it, I was like, yep. That that's something that does exist. There's there is an assumption of when you should be getting over something, and I guess like if your animal died, if your parents died, if like you, you got a never car get accident, it. you like, may never like, get over it. Who knows? It. Who is to tell you how long that you need to take? It's almost like a judgment of how much you love something. Of course, it hurts. It's always gonna hurt. But like, I wonder if they feel impacted because it's like oh you're just like you always bringing it down. Well, you're always bringing me down because you're not letting me have my process like right. my process is probably not as long as you think it is but here i am
1: i'll give you another example where someone was like so Brittany griner did she was in russian prison like last year and a former student of mine was like reggie because i when she came back home she was here there's a picture of her and kamala harris and i put it on my social media story one of my students was just like i had more respect for you i thought that you wouldn't value criminals blah 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 all this other stuff and I was like, first of all, aren't you from a former Soviet country? You trust Val- Vladimir Putin like that? You know, so you repping Vladimir Putin like that, number one. And number two, I hope you never have an experience where you're in a gulag for nine months. And if you do, I hope no one treats you the way that you just talked about Britney to me. Crickets. He didn't say anything because I was just like, no, nah, nice try. That's not acceptable for me. And I rarely take the seat of the teacher like that. But I was just like, he was one of my students. I was just like, I taught you better than that, man.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think the mind can like really run a course where you're thinking like, oh, that was wrong. And then you just pile yourself into what's wrong and then you show up to someone and they give you a different perspective. and You're like, oh, crap. Maybe that was not (laughs) as well thought out as I thought it was. Yeah. And,
1: you know, social media doesn't necessarily encourage contemplative response. Right. It's usually really. Yes. Shocker. Shocker. (laughs) You didn't know that. right? I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) All
0: right. This is beautiful. So. I've noticed we come across this term that is a creation of what's called sacred space. And to have a space in which is sacred is to also know that some spaces are not sacred and to also realize, you know, some spaces are just neutral or whatever they are. But what I'm curious about is what is it about that type of space, the sacred space, that makes it sacred? And how do we go about creating such spaces to have our grief and create a Sangha and to have like teacher-student positions where... You know, the student can teach the teacher and the teacher can teach the student. Like, how do we, because I feel like this space is pretty sacred. We're, we're very open. I literally just met you like <laughs> 30 minutes ago mm-hmm. and and I feel really good about this. And, you know, you know, some of my brothers from Baltimore. And and so it's like this instant connection. Yeah, I'm just curious, like, how does one go about creating a space in which it's sacred?
1: I'm, I'm thankful for the question because that is, I've never been asked to articulate something that comes natively to me. So I appreciate that for the exercise that's about to transpire. So I just try as a teacher, I try and model radical vulnerability, compassion, and it's not that I know more than someone. It's that I have more experience in facilitating the space than someone. So it's incumbent upon me as a teacher not to lord my knowledge over you, but to create conditions for your knowledge to arise. And if your knowledge arises and other people's knowledge arises, then we teach each other. And so my job is to facilitate for wisdom to arise so that we're all benefited from mutual sharing as opposed to like being, and I'm also a grassroots organizer, right? So like the solutions come from the people. The organizer just facilitates the people coming together. So my teaching style is heavily influenced by my political work in that my job is just to create conditions for thriving, not be like I know everything, you know nothing, and please, like, take feverish notes to get hand cramps because this is when it comes one way. That, that's yeah. gross to me. I, I have no, I have no place yeah. for that. We
0: all know what those hand cramps feel like too, <laughs> especially, especially RA. <laughs> mm-hmm. We didn't have no like no no, no
1: man number two pencils.
0: So, <laughs> so uh, you said something about promoting, like you're promoting the wisdom. Of others. And this is where I find the authentic connection is, is not someone telling you what it is or what it is. And this is kind of how I conduct the podcast is more of a, I don't know anything and I'm here to learn and I'm here to explore your experience and your knowledge and your wisdom. and And that's kind of where I feel like the true nature of the good stuff, the nectar comes out because there's some intelligent people that may be a student. And they give you a beautiful perspective and a nice lesson. And you're like, wow, that's great. Let's integrate that into our practice now or our community. And I've always found that super beneficial. Okay. So you mentioned a couple of times politics and you got yoga. So I'm kind of excited for this part. Let's go. When I was reading about you on your website, I came across something I thought was very interesting You've worked in politics and you also are someone who has been campaigning and organizing and you expressed a little bit about that already. I thought this was pretty interesting because when we think about mindfulness, we tend to not associate politics with it. I'm curious how these two practices intersect each other for you and how they show up in your life. Like, How do you be mindful in politics, especially nowadays, because the the riff is so vast.
1: The perceived We riff. need
0: another something out there the being represented but also being mindful it feels hard to try and find that yeah
1: so for me it it's not a absolute rift it's a perceived rift right it's a rift that's been predicated by predatory forces to maintain a status quo that is extractive and destructive right and so long as we buy into the oh i can't deal with this someone else will deal with it then those forces will continue to do the work that they're doing of dividing communities, exploiting people economically and spiritually and those sorts of things. So for me, mindfulness is about creating loving awareness in the heart and compassion arising from there and stillness in the mind to be aware of what's truly going on. And then once you perceive what's truly going on, what wise action can you take to alleviate suffering? You know, most people see what's truly going on Oh, I don't want to deal with this. La, 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 la. That's not mindfulness. It doesn't go away. It doesn't go away, yeah. right? And, you know, and it's also delusion. And, and it, heartless probably yeah, too. right, sure. So you seeing what's happening and then being like, am I right? Like there are practices that allow you to titrate being able to bear witness to the full world, right? And I'm also not saying that what I do is for everybody, you know, because so, I've been asked to stand in like ridiculously, seemingly intractable situations and just be open in the heart and try and bridge that divide. You know, impeachment of Donald Trump was one of them. I recently had the deconflict protest at Netroots Nation in Chicago between youth, Palestinian youth activists and a member of Congress where they wanted to co-opt the program out of anger, rightful anger about how Palestinians are being treated. And they were taking it out on a member of Congress who's actually one of their allies. And so it was so wrapped in emotion that I had to be that mindful, peaceful, present space to bridge that. Right. So the moderators didn't want to deal with it. The activists wanted to be heard. That's that's far apart. Right.
0: Yeah. It's like super sensitive. Anything could be triggering to that sort of space.
1: So I'm there in dress whites because I was doing spiritual work barefoot with a gong in my left hand and my hand on my, my right heart, my right hand on my heart. They went from screaming at the member of Congress to screaming at me. And I, at one point, I, this, after this point, I don't remember what happened, but I was like, right. So basically I was like, give me all your hate because this love I'm about to throw on you is going to derail everything. And so it went like that, got present and started just deconflicting. They were just, I was like, so what are y'all's demands? They're like, sign the bill now. Logistically impossible. Congress isn't in session. What's your next demand? And they just kept saying stuff. And I was just locked in and present. And I was just like, so... You have been heard. We want a meeting. Her chief of staff is over there. Go talk to him. What is this truly about? And so I was just really I was like, I honor your protest. I'm a hellraiser too. I was like, but if you are seeking to disrupt the peace of other people, that's a net negative. And as a peaceful practitioner, I cannot abide by that. Right. And I can't abide by your through your harm causing harm to other people. And it took 20 minutes, but we were able to wind everything down. And to the people who were silent in the crowd, I was like, so to those of you who paid good money to be here, if you've had enough of them, it is well within your agency to politely ask them to stop. You abdicating your agency as an activist, I can't bear witness to that either. Right. You have a voice. You and there are more people who want to hear what's happening on stage than don't. So if you're silent, that means you're complicit. And if you're complicit, then that means you're not rooted in peace.
0: Ooh, interesting. While you were saying that, I just thought of something. Anger isn't always rooted in solutions. It's more rooted in emotions. As someone who's spiritual and yoga-based and mindful, but like went to Yale for <laughs> philosophy of politics, you know how government works. You know how politics work. You know how the judicial system functions. And you also know how the emotions occur and arise. And it's very factual, but I loved how you were also standing there just receiving. There's this Buddhist quote I really love where it's like, when someone tries to defeat you, just receive the defeat and offer them the victory. Here you go. And that's what it feels like you did is I'm not trying to fight you. I'm just going to show you a different type of energy that promotes the thing that we all want, not the like hatred, you know, misunderstanding. It's like I'll be factual with you because I know the system, but let's have the conversation. Let's not interrupt because something that person is probably saying might resonate with you and or you might need to know that.
1: Right. And or they may have a bill in their committee that they will veto because you treated them poorly. Right. Like all politics is mad personal. Right. Don't say
0: that. It is.
1: Whatever. I know. They're human beings. But I don't want it to be. Well.
0: It needs to be mad community. Yeah. but (laughs) Not mad personal. But
1: personal can be community. Yeah. And if it's rooted in, again, I I agreed with them on their issue. I just disagreed on their tactics. And that's what I was trying to say to them was just like, you are well within your right to be angry and within your right to protest. And if the aim of this is to disrupt the program. That is not getting you more freedom in Palestine, and it's actually ruining the reputation of the organization of which I'm a member of the board. So infidelity to my board service, I can't watch this. Truth hurts sometimes.
0: Yeah. But like, hurts good. Yeah, If you're willing to get hurt, right, you can grow.
1: You know what I mean? <laughs> right. It's almost essential, though.
0: True. Yeah. And honestly, some of the most advanced emotional growth or spiritual growth I've had has hurt before it's happened, like it's been very unfavorable situations that I've gone through. And I'm like, I learned the most at those moments.
1: Like I told you earlier, that horrible job where they treated me like crap for the better part of a year. set me on the course that I'm like, that's why I'm before you and right you now. you
0: offered them the defeat. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You were humble and you took it and you know your worth. And you were just like, you know what? Thank you for that experience. It wasn't favorable. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm bowing out. Yeah, I'm done. You know, yep. like peace out. I got some bigger things to do. And thank you for showing me how powerful I actually am. And so that's beautiful. All right. So, with this type of work, I also notice you facilitate yoga classes and instructions to Congress and congressional (laughs) staff. Yeah. I've been waiting for this one. Hmm. I found this to be very progressive and kind of cool. It's avant garde for sure. (laughs) I'm curious. (laughs) I'm curious what your experience is when teaching yoga to Congress members. And also, are there certain types of political ideologies that tend to lean more towards doing yoga compared to others? I don't want to stereotype, but I see Republicans maybe not doing as much yoga and mindfulness Maybe practices. Maybe
1: maybe more hot yoga. Maybe like... The, phys- uh, the physical practice. The tea
0: party. Maybe they do yoga more mm-hmm. often. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So from your experience, what do you think?
1: Well, so I took teacher training in 2018 and 2019, so... When we flipped the house from Republican to Democrat and the squad came in and then during impeachment were two hundred and three hours, three hundred hours. So all throughout the Trump era, I probably took about a thousand hours of yoga teacher training and mindfulness training while having a full time job. And like so at the heart of the resistance against fascism and stuff. So those things were inextricably linked from the beginning. Right. Like so when I took the job in the resistance, I was like, I need something to anchor me in something outside of this. And so that's what teaching became. What I didn't understand necessarily is that as all of these things were becoming embodied, people were noticing. Right. So um, Ayanna Presley, a member of Congress from Massachusetts, uh, she was one of the first people who were like, you're a healer. And I was like, I ain't no healer, you know, or, or even just like, I didn't, see, you know, I was like, I'm an activist that's taking this training to keep me from smack, you know, like, you know, and she's like, no, nah, but your presence is medicinal. Your, your peace is medicinal. And she's the first member who asked me to teach her staff. So in October, 2019, I, I taught her staff. Then when the pandemic hit Rashida Talib and her staff called me, Deb Holland and her staff called me and I used virtual yoga and meditation as an opportunity to keep the communities together during a really stressful time, right? So it was a community-building exercise, but also that was alleviating stress in the body because in the early days of the pandemic, everything was crazy town, you know? Like, everything was just, like, the Trump era didn't help because they didn't really have a plan other than, like, we're going to open in two weeks, whatever. And there was just such mortal fear of breathing someone else's air and, like, we're forced in isolation. Those became opportunities for people to release in community, and that kind of helped me be of service because that's all I really ever wanted to do when I started teaching. I wasn't like, I'm going to be a name or I'm going to be like well-known or those sorts of things. I just wanted to serve the people before me. And it ended up being members of Congress, like the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the DNC. I taught um, meditation to the DNC two and a half weeks ago at their invitation. They were like, we're having a DEI training and, you know, we're seeing a lot of stuff where black folks or LGBTQ All these affinity groups feel under threat and duress. And we know that you can hold this container with ridiculous compassion. Can you teach? I'm like, sure. And, you know, I got kind of emotional because like to now be sought after, after being one of the only people for five to six years means that I had some impact on the culture.
0: Yeah. And it doesn't seem as though this was the direction in which you wanted to choose. (laughs) You know, like uh like here's spirit (laughs) laying, laying the ground. He's like, I told you so. Yeah, for you know? sure. And honestly, thank you for showing up because there's communities that you're finding that probably didn't exist that you're creating, you're inviting to happen. And now you're giving mindfulness practice to people that probably should have it. Everybody in politics probably should have like a meditation thing, practice going or on. Or at least that a bell them. or
1: something, right? Something to like break the break yeah. the trance. Yeah.
0: Oh, that'd be great. A little mindful bell before you like do voting of a bill or Can something. Can you imagine
1: like, that? I mean... It seems simple, but why
0: not? Honestly, and it takes like a second or two. I don't know, just like a congressional rolling
1: ohm. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Especially for bo- no, let me not get started, but yeah, <laughs> they'd pro- some countries probably make fun of us. Something's got to give. United we stand. <laughs> oh I for owned sure. this place. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. So, with your experience of working and teaching with Congress members, yoga. I'm wondering how a body and mindful practice helps enhance their ability to do their job of working in Congress and interfacing with party members and all that. Have you heard or see any advancements while working with them? Have any of the people that you taught come up to you and be like, oh my God, I just had this new revelation and you know your teachings have helped me or like the way I think now is a little bit more holistic and I'm here in service instead of I'm against that party or this party, like they want to work together. Anything the big, come up for you?
1: the biggest thing that these practices offer people in either as activists or as electeds is a break. Right, the cadence of political culture is incessant. It's tweet after tweet after this after that. It's go 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 go, go. and people aren't aware of the degradation of their energy and their mind by consistently going. You think that you're doing yourself a service by rushing. When in fact, you're making a poor choice due to lack of energy and the energy that you don't have, you have to expend to correct the mistake that you probably shouldn't have made in the first place. Right. So, creating conditions for people to take a pause to make better decisions is almost incalculable. But people have told me that all the time. Like, I now feel reset in my mind and I can make better decisions. You're welcome. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Ayanna Presley told me that um, we were in a meeting one time and she's like, Brother, let me tell you something about you. And I was like, What's that, sis? She was like, Your piece is so powerful, it impacts the blood pressure the room drops when you enter it. And I was like, That's one of your check marks. Right. Yeah. But you're doing it to other
0: people now. <laughs> you're like checking marking other people. Look at you.
1: Get it. Seriously, right? So the impact of my bob, my vibe. Is teaching in ways that I don't even. I mean, because I I'm just present and trying to be of service. I'm not like walking and necessarily thinking, like, oh, I'm gonna go in and blow. Like it's not even like that. It's like, so okay, this is happening here. This is happening here. How can I serve this in a way that's beneficial to all people and not detrimental to myself? So those are some of the feedback I get. Or usually before exec- I've been asked to come in and do like song or sound or meditation ahead of executive planning retreats. So as organizations like NARAL or other folks, as they start to like allocate budget and make strategic decisions, like I've done meditations with them before they make these big decisions. So it's not rush, 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 that it can be as resourced and intentional as possible.
0: Money does get wasted a lot. So it's probably good to have a approach in which to use it usefully. Yeah. So interesting. Well,
1: and also just to be present as you make the decision, right? Just because what happens also in activist spaces where I teach as well is that people make strategic mistakes because they think things are different than they actually are. Just because you did something for 10 years straight doesn't mean you continue to do it. Circumstances change so radically that those who continue to do defunct practices lose.
0: Yeah, and I think it, sometimes it's hard to realize if something is defunct. You know, like people don't like to admit their wrongs.
1: Well, and, and you definitely won't do it if you're not present. But if you're present, you take a breath, you have these space, you're just kind of like, it doesn't really feel right anymore, right? It just allows for different things to arise so you can see things as they truly are. And in, in that clarity, you can make you can take wise action as opposed to preponderance of like bad decisions.
0: Mm-hmm. It feels very one-dimensional too, to be like, so I'm this and that's how I roll and forever for my constituents it's like maybe try something else on Mm -hmm. if I actually thought about the opposition's ideologies and I just like thought about it why they're doing that come maybe maybe there is some truth in a little bit of that but I still hold on to this and and then that's where the collaboration can start happening
1: as a political strategist people used to hate when I say this but it's true I used to study Karl Rove I don't agree with anything Karl Rove stands for but the way he was able to enact message discipline about culture war stuff I was like this is wisdom you know what I mean like so if I as a person of a different not only political belief but of a different spiritual cadence if I can have his level of ruthless focus on compassionate stuff what a great world it would be
0: ruthless focus yeah
1: on compassion <laughs> all, right, all right I said that recently where someone like you don't mean ruthless I was like I absolutely do
0: I said what I said yeah
1: absolutely like, what do you mean? I was just like laser focused. What happens in progressive communities? Like we take into account everybody's feelings, which isn't a bad thing. But like if there is a viewpoint that me existential philosophy. So if your worldview nullifies my existence, I, re- I reject that.
0: Yeah. I think of that as a prescription of lens in which you live through your heart. And so it's like you need to clean that lens. <laughs> you know, like you get a little fingerprint on your lens. And now you're not looking as true as you can. I think in the Buddhist world too, it's like we're all born with innate goodness. And like when you really get down to the nitty gritty stuff, you want everybody to win. You want everyone to succeed. So if we are responding from our emotions, it's not as skillful as it can be because we're not taking in perspectives of others and you don't want to know anyone else's existence because like that's no existence I want to exist in, <laughs> nope. you know? Nope. Also, I love the thing about like just your presence. I'm, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling the presence. I feel so light right now. But like your presence is bringing people's blood pressure down. And that is not something that is just given to people or whatever. You know, like that's a practice. That's a way of being. I feel like that's like a very teacher moment is I've had some very awesome mentors in my life and still do. And the way they are and be is admirable. And so having that emotional stability and also willingness to be humbled is super important and i think people need to see that and you're just like a uh, a representation of such things
1: yeah i mean the other thing too we mentioned earlier about um yoga teacher meditation teacher i don't really like that terminology especially in um western world i'm not a yoga teacher i'm a yogi okay that teaches like so i do physical practice daily i do sound and meditation practice daily and as bases for my lived experience and then from that discipline practice things emerge that I share. But in yoga teacher land, that brings to mind the thing that kept me from the practice in the first place. So, you know, skinny white chicks talking in high voices about appropriated culture. You know what I mean? Like, that just never... Like, what do you know about that? Right, <laughs> right. Like...
0: I also noticed you do a, some other work with, like, activism and anti-racism over your career. It seems as though having a practice in politics and yoga would be a unique and potent relationship while working with these other topics and i'm wondering could you speak upon how these two practices enhance your ability to approach the work of the like sensitive space of anti-racism and also the activism do you have any techniques you come across of like how to present the information in groups or to yourself or i'm sure you've been in situations you're like that's fucked up (laughs) and it's like oh wait i'm the guy that's like needing to hold that space how do you do such a thing
1: yeah so when you get older, you begin to realize that a lot of the nonsensical stuff, um, is, at least in my my lived experience, matters. So me growing up in the burbs matters because like I knew how I became conversant with all cultures. Like me being first gen at Yale matters because I never seen that much wealth before and New England's kind of a cold culture, but I graduated. It gave me grit. It gave me the ability to access one of the oldest networks in the world. Right. And it actually helped my politics to be in these experiences because I'm comfortable around everybody. You know, like I was a janitor and I've been in a room with presidents and diplomats. Right. And so like that lived experience is helpful. So in the context of yoga and politics, I try and remember that at essence, we're all just people trying to do good. And holding that space allows for I'll give you a perfect example. So I'm doing black male healing retreats at Kripalu. So Kripalu has a legacy of not being terribly diverse. What is that? So Kripalu is a a place. It's a retreat center in Western Massachusetts created by Swami Kripalu and now an organization and school, an Ayurvedic school and yoga teaching school. And um, holding this space for black men working with a white institution is like the revolution, right? So like, Krapalu's is helping me pay for folks because they fund scholarships for people to come to Krapalu for me to teach them for Black identifying men to heal, but also for white people to see it and get images of Black men in their head that are not, I'm trying to take your purse or or these sorts of things. So it's helping people who look like me to realize that not everyone who doesn't look like them is out to get them. One, two, it's showing white bodied folks that the liberation of all beings is in your best interest, right? So, Duh. yeah, <laughs> like, no, come
0: on. But
1: people, and you know this as well as I do, in, in these mindful spaces, they're like, it's all about me. Yeah. No, it's yeah. not. So, that's not doing it right. Not at all. And so, seeing black joy unleashed in white institutions helps both people. So, I operate that middle ground space. So, how do I? Protect my retreat attendees and interface with white awkwardness and like have a relationship with the administrators of Kripalu and with the people that I'm trying to bring. Right. And so being in all these different places in different ways opens you up to com- not even compromise, but you, s- I state the work I'm trying to do. And if something's not in alignment, I speak it. And I also, this is controversial to some extent, but. Not And it, it's not for every person of color to be in these intersectional spaces.
0: Yeah, I've heard that too. It's like, it's not my responsibility to make your white awkwardness feel okay with this. I don't care. Like, I want to go play music. I want to go like hang out. I want to do yoga. I don't need to make sure that your feelings are okay because my feelings have been not seen for a long time.
1: And And conversely, it's also not the job of a teacher to do harm, right? And so... If the harm is in service to alleviating delusion and is done with care, great. But I'm here to say that had I not done the hard work of confronting my demons, unearthing them, and then sharing them, I wouldn't be able to hold intersectional space. Right? So I can, make, I can be that bridge because I'm the angry black guy that has done deep healing to be able to talk to black and white people. Interesting. That is quite a space to be held. It sounds like blood pressure in
0: the room just going straight down yeah. for everybody,
1: and it creates conditions for people to have awkward conversations. But in a space that it's okay to absolutely, yeah, because that's super and they important. and they won't be canceled. And if someone says something that's, it's almost as if there's a lot of trust when I leave those spaces, right? Because if someone says something wild, I'll be like, "Is that? Did you mean this or this?" So it's my job to like tease out the awkwardness so that people feel comfortable, but also to tell folks like. Someone may say something that might trigger you. Please use your tools. One of them being like breath work. Another of them being like tactile pressure, noticing where tightness is arising in the body and being of service to alleviating that. Or maybe you need to leave the room. But leaving room in a way that's of service to your needs, not to make a spectacle.
0: Yeah, that, that's not going to solve anything. Right.
1: Yeah. You acting out is causing harm. And I know this from my lived experience, too. Just because I felt harm was caused to me, it may not always have been the case. It was just my perception.
0: Yeah, and so, you know, our perceptions can be wrong sometimes. So we we just need to have those tools to figure it out on our own. We're adults here. Come on. (laughs) And we want everyone to win. I mean, we sort of had a little dialogue about this before we even came down to the studio. But I had another podcast that I ran with some friends of mine. The podcast was called Look Again Podcast. And I actually met them on this podcast. And they're from the Holistic Life Foundation. They live in Baltimore. Ali Ottman, and Andreas. And, you know, I said something about that. And you're like, they're my homies. I'm like, they're my homies too. We just, like, <laughs> sent them a photo. And, like, mm-hmm. they keep texting me and stuff. This moment where I'm like, whoa, like... It just feels so small and it's so cool that you know them. And I felt like we almost knew each other a little bit more. And, you know, you have a grow up in Baltimore. I've been to Baltimore many times with them and it's like quite different than Boulder. And, uh, (laughs) you know, and and like I actually really like it there. I love the environment, the history. There's like so many.
1: It's very honest.
0: There's so many cool things just going on. And like especially when Ali and Ottman and Andreas are like bringing me around to their friends and stuff. It's just like really cool to be in a different community and environment. So on that podcast, we leaned into people of color and mindfulness communities and sanghas and stuff, and you've sort of spoken about this a couple times, and they have over time told me stories of not really being seen in their communities and or in some of the like yoga settings, and I'm wondering how do you deal with these experiences of trying to be inclusive and diverse, and as a white-bodied person, I feel... Like I've had a unique experience because I actually ran a podcast with three other dudes who are teaching inner city kids meditation mindfulness. And we talked to a lot of people of color about mindfulness. And I don't think a lot of white body people tend to like go into that subject. And I would like to assume I don't have that white awkwardness or at least yet, you know, maybe there's a situation that it can happen, but I feel like I can mix with all people, but you know, I am in this body. So here we are.
1: So one of the blessings of the pandemic is that it tore down barrier to entry. And there were a lot of people, whether they be studios or teachers, who didn't really know what to say or do, shockingly, honestly. But when um, when they murdered George Floyd, I opened my mouth and I haven't been quiet since, right? And started to speak just very candidly about, so for those of you for whom this is a blip on the radar screen, you're negating my lived experience because George Floyd was a little bit taller than me, same age, and by all reputation, was a kind man in his community. And he was killed, basically, in a one of the most cruelest ways ever. And so if this passes by and you stop thinking about it, then you don't really care about justice, do you? Uh, right? So, like, me speaking this truth has actually been quite surprising in that, like, there's some people who... Appreciate the honesty, right? That one of the if something is said about me that I remember and I get often is that your authenticity is a breath of fresh air. There are norms and tropes that are so overplayed in the mindfulness space, or like the Buddhist space, or Dharmic space, and yogic space of everyone's talking like this and find peace. Yeah, peace is not necessarily in a tone of voice. Sometimes the most peaceful thing I've done is tell someone to stop. Right. Like peace is not a lack of confrontation. Peace is deconflicting. conflicting It's right. so, confronting too. Right. Absolutely. Right. And so peace that is rooted in aversion or avoidance, that's not peace. That's delusion. Right. And so what I try and do and luckily have been able to do is I'm rooted in this. I mean, I'm, I'm teaching at CU Boulder. Right. And so like that's not a, that's not a historically black college. So I can be my full self in these spaces, which, empowers people who look like me and informs people who don't, right? Because you can't question my chops, like whether it be the undergrad that I went to or my yoga teachers or my meditation teachers, all of them are like known or many of them are known. So like I've got like the resume and all these other things. And so that gets me in the room, which allows me to speak my truth in different ways. I mean, I'll give you another example. When I was at Omega, I gave a sound bath And this woman who works at um, CU Boulder was there. And I don't teach sound baths as a comfort. It's a method of peaceful, peaceful presence. So hear all the sounds, feel all the feels. And as you feel all the feels, decide which is true and what isn't true, release. Those sorts of things. So it's like it's an exercising of the broader mindfulness skill. And this woman, she was like, Reggie. You played this sweet melody, and in the, inter- in the interim when you were switching your set, you were just like, you are not your motherfucking to-do list. And at first, I was like, he said that? Yeah, he said MF. But she was like, I've been saying that to myself when I get wrapped up in my thoughts. If this big-bodied hip-hop head black dude wasn't at Omega teaching, she wouldn't have had the awareness, like, when she gets wrapped up, you're not your motherfucking to-do list. You're a spiritual being having a human experience. So me teaching and dropping like the bomb gave her the clarity to make an informed decision about where she focused her attention. That's awesome. Yeah. But that's why representation matters.
0: I mean, I'm just going to compliment you real quick. You are insanely unique. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's very surprising when you hear about your educational background and what you've done and then how you've shifted your life. It's like everything you do has been for the good of you and others. And it's really beautiful to hear all that of how you're just like, I'm going to do motherfucking me. (laughs) I'm going to do me. I'm going to do what's
1: right. Always.
0: I love hearing that. and It's always so interesting too, being in spiritual spaces because there's tons of bypassing.
1: And tons of homogeneity, right? Like, you know, I would rather have people, me being like you don't help nobody. You being like me don't help nobody. Please don't be like me. It would
0: hurt. (laughs) I don't think people would want to be like me. The amount of thoughts I have in my head, it would crush them.
1: I mean, why do you think I have so many gongs and sound bowls, right? But the the world needs each of us at our full, uncompromised, authentic selves, not as, any, as regurgitations of conformity, right? And that's how we—the seemingly intractable problems that we have, we have all of the ability and access to creativity if we choose it.
0: Yeah. There was another thing you said that I found interesting is— justice or what I assume that could be justice can be one-sided. And the thing is is what we need to realize is I always have this thing of like how you define something is not how my internal definition goes but like what we need to be conscious of is have that internal eraser to be willing to redefine it because as right. you get older you redefine what love means to you, right. you redefine what Who trust, you are, right. friendships, relationship collaboration, you have all these different terms that are very impactful to you and how you show up in life but yet you need to be willing to redefine some of those sometimes i just thought that was cool because it's like oh well, they're not getting justice and it's like well hold on you're not hearing the other perspectives of what they think justice is as well
1: right i mean i'll give you an example of that too like so in my political work i work on criminal justice reform narrative and most people think voters want tough on crime they don't they want solutions they want police accountability um and this is like 65, 35 margins in polling. And what is commonly accepted as the right answer is wrong. And speaking what people really want in the face of what others say they want, that's justice.
0: Yeah. And the voice in which that needs to come from and be said needs to be an authentic one, or else it doesn't really hold. And I feel like the way you're teaching and facilitating and moving through life feels insanely authentic hence the presence of someone or a way of being can really help others relax and just calm down and and do their thing you know like find their joy it's it's very calming so i want to take this time to like just appreciate you for coming in the studio it, it was like so i actually went to the hot springs and had to come back a little early to do this and i was super stoked because I've never really done a Mindful You podcast with just a friend telling me to interview someone else, and I didn't really get permission to, and I just did it anyways, because once I saw who you were, I was like, nope, you got to be on the podcast. You're too in line with everything Naropa stands for. I'm going to get you in touch with somebody, because I think your teachings and your presence would really be so inviting to the Naropa community, and I just wanted to provide this time and space. Do you want to shout out any upcoming events any sites or any teaching tours that you got going on yeah so how can, do people find you
1: yeah you can always find me at activepeaceyoga.com at oregiglobal global on instagram that's o-r-e-g-g-i-e global it's o-r-e-g-g-i-e global in portuguese but that's t-m-i at active peace yoga on instagram and my email is open too that's the other thing i'm not a teacher that's i'm a human being i'm not like a celebrity that's untouchable I'm a man of the people. So at gmail.com I'll, It may take me a while, but I always respond.
0: He's a man of the people. He came to my house in my basement <laughs> to talk to me about mindfulness and his practices. So mm-hmm. he'll reach out.
1: Absolutely. All right. So thank you so
0: much for being on the podcast. Absolutely. And I just appreciate your knowledge and your wisdom and just your presence.
1: And gratitude. Yeah. Thank you.
0: On behalf of the Naropa community, thank you for listening to Mindful You. official podcast of Naropa University. Check us out at www.naropa.edu or follow us on social media for more updates.